Hello and welcome back. It's episode 124 of Canberra Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And today's conversation, I'm joined by Tej Singh. Tej is a property investor, author, and a podcast host better known as Tej Talks. Within this episode, expect to learn how Tej moved career to become a full-time property investor and the process that resulted in him remarkably purchasing 15 properties in just nine months. This all started out with an initial £30,000, and by the time he'd purchased the 15 properties, the portfolio was worth £1.3 certainly not a figure to be sniffed at. Within this episode, we dive into key topics within property investing, investor finance, bridging, education, and mentoring. Importantly, I ask about the many different strategies that are available to you when you decide to get into property investing. These include things like buy, refurbish, refinance, buy to let, flips, and more. Tej explains all the different strategies and how they work, but also importantly, the considerations for selecting the right strategy for you should this be an area that you want to diversify into. Lastly, I'm always interested in the mindset and habits of successful people. And when somebody like Tej is operating at the level that he is, I was keen to understand what he's learned from the Stoics, which is something that he is big on reading, and the core mind and body habits that he has to perform his absolute best. I'm sure you'll find this incredibly interesting as well, as well as the the ins and outs of property investing, of which Tej is an expert. Without any further ado from me, let's dive into this episode right now. Welcome back to Cambro Conversations. Today's conversation, we're talking all things property. To do so, I'm joined by Tej Singh, also known as Tej Talks. He's a property investor and a podcast host. Tej, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Colin. I'm looking forward to being here. And I was saying to you before we hit that magic record button that we've covered property sporadically during the last 120-odd episodes, but people are more conscious than ever about what to do with their money and how to make it work for them. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And before you and I get set off on the, what, what's causing that and, the, and, and, and why, I think it's prevalent that we look at all the different avenues that are available and there's so much hype and talk. And some of my most listened to podcasts have been on things like cryptocurrency and investing with Andrew Craig. But property is an asset class that I haven't explored enough from a personal level, but also for the audience. So that's why I'm super excited to have you here. Yeah, no, look, I think it's a, it's a fantastic asset class. Everyone kind of knows it. We're sitting in properties. We see them all the time. We go into them. It's so logical and obvious. But, you know, when you have a, a business or you're doing something else or, you know, it's a lot easier to pick up free trade or whatever, nutmeg, and just put money into the stocks and shares. So property is a lot more complex, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I think because of its need, and arguably it's need as a commodity and the huge shortage we have, it's always going to be popular uh, and inflation is always going to ensure that property prices do go up over the long term. Yeah, that appreciation piece, I, I can completely understand that. But I guess if we were to really dive into your own backstory, Tej, it wasn't always property for you. Uh, before the before the yellow jumper and the the branding and the the, the five-star podcast, what, what were you doing in terms of career and stuff like that that kind of pushed you towards property? Yeah, so I studied biochemistry at university, love science. I loved it then, I still do. Uh, and... I, mean, I don't know what I learned at university. Like, I, what a waste of time, what a waste of money. But it was good fun, so that's cool. And yeah, uh, I then worked in medical education, which is a bit like marketing, but for doctors, so a bit boring. You can't sort of, you can't uh, claim things, even though pharmaceuticals love to do that. Anyways, I got fired after like eight months um, because essentially I wasn't delivering on what was supposed to be there, and that's because I lost interest in the ethics of pharmaceutical companies, uh, or at least what I viewed and read and saw the facts. Um, and actually being in the industry, I suppose I would see things and think, yeah, this makes no sense. So I just gave up. Literally, me as a person, when I don't like something, when I don't like a person or a conversation, I switch off. I lose manners. I lose just anything. And I'm just like, no, it's dead. Like, I have no I have no calories for this conversation, basically. Right. Um, so that happened. Uh, and then I went into something even more ethical, uh, which is recruitment, because I wanted um, I wanted a, a business or a job that would give me out what I put into it. And I was sick of, you know, this whole thing of working past five o'clock. I was like, well, hold on a minute. My contract says five. Like, do I get paid for this hour? And my boss would laugh at me and say, no. 
And I was like, you're talking to me like I'm stupid, but you're stupid because why am I working for free? So I thought, you know what, recruitment, low startup cost, low knowledge, technology, brains cost. And I set it up uh, and I had, a, I had a friend who had a recruitment business. So he's sort of helping me a little bit. Um, had my first placement or money in, in month three, doubled turnover, doubled profit every single year. But I hated it. It was um, golden handcuffs, people say. So after about three and a half, four years after doing some contracting, getting paid way too much to do way too little, which is cool because that's fine. Uh, I wanted what I mentioned earlier. I wanted an asset that would increase in value, bring me cash flow. Uh, one that I suppose makes sense. You know, it's logical. One that's in my control to an extent. You know, I, if I yeah. invest in BA, then it's up to the CEO to make sure I make money. It's totally out of my hands. So I wanted something that was, again, dependent on me. Maybe there's a theme here. And yeah, listened to podcasts, did lots of reading, a huge amount of networking, listening to conversations like this, just getting myself in there for six months, starting my own podcast, starting the brand. And then that led me to my first deal and that led me into property. It's interesting that a lot of what we discussed there is to do with your self-awareness of what your drivers are. And you're able to articulate that so clearly now. But at the time when you're maybe going into recruitment and you're describing it now as like golden handcuffs, which the concept in my head would be that you're kind of, you're earning so much money or enough money in that space that you don't look at other opportunities. Is that the correct definition? Yeah, and you kind of feel tied to it because you're saying like with I like handcuffs because you're making money from it. Like they're golden handcuffs. You're making money from it. You're tied to it. You're like, oh, if I leave it, I lose this money, but I hate it, but I'm making money. So you're kind of tied to it. Yeah. So it's amazing that you've got that self-awareness probably at the time to make the move away from it as well, because you realize it's maybe a hard thing to do. But equally, like you say, when your morals shifted and your awareness of what was going on within the pharmaceutical industry, you became uncomfortable. You were like, I'm making this move. And equally with the recruitment business, you were like, right, okay, I'm not going to put all my energy into this now. I need to go and do something different. But am I right in saying you still own the recruitment business, Tej? Yeah, yeah, I still own it. It's still there. You know, it's still sort of, it doesn't do recruitment necessarily, um, but it's kind of functioning separately. Um, I kind of, my property training education business, I suppose, is kind of going through that now. So it's kind of shifted, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I still own it and it's just, yeah, it's just there. It was a good vehicle to sit in the background. Yeah. And you know what? All the money I made from it, uh, I used as, you know, an intercompany loan to my property businesses, which allowed me to get started from the start because I've worked hard to have these savings and they just sort of sat there. Um, I didn't invest them looking back silly, but you know, it got me started. So yeah. Yeah. And one of the headlines, whenever I've delved into your content page is that first nine months of yours, which incredibly resulted in you owning, I think 15 different properties. Um, how does that start? Because you're leaving, you're leaving the recruitment focus. You've got a little bit of money from that and probably some of your own savings from working over the years. How do you, acquire your first property that's a, a property investment rather than something to go and live in yeah so it, it happened slowly so yeah 59 months was very quick very rapid very stressful but to get to the point where i could achieve that it was slow it took six months of networking meeting people listening listening trying to learn trying to put stuff together trying to listen to every conversation look at every like just being engrossed in it you know whilst i was still in recruitment um for me quitting the business or sort of not doing it anymore was the best way for me to focus on property. I struggle with focus anyway, um, you know, in like deep working. And I'm always working on it. But by doing that, it allowed me to then go full time in it, have more time, more energy, more mental capacity for it. So I suppose, how does one acquire that first property? The first thing is education. Like, I'm not saying go out here and pay me to be your mentor, pay me to educate you. You should. I'm not saying you need to. I'm just saying get some education because if you don't understand how to buy a house, the legal process, the timelines, how to read searches, what this means, then builders, the worst part, how to find them, vet them, manage them, and then the refinance. If you don't understand these stages, you're going to literally walk in blind and just, oh, well, you know, homes under the hammer, they do property or like, oh, you know, I've, I had an auntie and she bought a property and it was great. And it's like, cool story, bro. But if you want to get a bigger yield and you want to make more money and you want to do it properly you need to know what you're doing to an extent so for me that's probably the first step is to get educated and understand and i did that the slow way 
Yeah, the slow way, but probably the right way as well, because you were building a brand with your podcast before you'd even done your first property deal, which I think shows an incredible amount of patience because we know how slow at times building a personal brand with a podcast mm. or Instagram can be. Of course, we get those elations and moments of high where there's more lessons this week or whatever, or uh, such and such is just shared on their story. So I know I'm going to get mm-hmm. more um, more subscribers and that's amazing. But doing that very slowly has led to you having quite good foundations because like you said, you maybe started slowly, but then those nine months when you were purchasing property was quicker than, well, well above the average for a property investor, I would imagine. Yeah, I would say so. You know, it's kind of like, I think there's some saying that we overestimate how much we can do in the first sort of few months, but then underestimate how much we can do in a longer time frame. And I think it's partly down to social media and most other people on social media and what people show and just the media and everything showing, oh, person standing in front of a Lamborghini with a Rolex, I can teach you the FX trade tomorrow or property got me this in one month. And you're like, no, I didn't. You're all lying. Um, It's so easy. And even if like someone is real, but then they post they got a Lamborghini, or they, but they've actually worked their ass for it. And they even say in the caption, this took me seven years of hard work. Ain't nobody reading that shit. They are looking at the Lamborghini and saying, she got a Lamborghini. I want one, but like, I want it in like a week, you know, the lead time for orders right now is like a year. But like, people don't, even when you say it, they don't see it. They just want the shortcut. They want the hack. So because of that, yeah, you know, yes, it was much faster what I did, but that's because it actually took longer to get to a place where I could do that. So yeah, I think building a brand before definitely helped because I raised, you know, over 800 grand of investor finance since then because of this. Yeah, 800 grand of investor finance, that's a a huge headline figure, isn't it? But how much of your own capital did you need to to get moving forward? Because if I'm thinking the kind of people listening to this who maybe, like me, work in a corporate job and are looking at diversifying their investments, how much much did you have when you were like, right, okay, time to hit the button, let's get my, my purchase done? So I can't remember the exact amount. I probably had something like 70 grand cash, from the recruitment business, you know, like retain net profits. However, I used only used £30,000 for my first deal because I was going to use bridging finance for the rest, but my broker at the time messed it up. So um, I actually used cash investment from a family member uh, who, funnily enough, was at their computer about to put this money into an ISA for like 0.1%. And I just caught him at the right time and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I think we should chat. And I was like, I saw it on the screen and I was like, damn, because once you put it in certain ISAs, you can't get it back out for a year. So this was lucky. Um, so I used that money along with my own money. So it was only 30 grand. I say only 30 grand. I was in that privileged position to have earned that. Um, you know, that, that's in a sort of low value area, like the North or Wales, whatever. So yeah, about 30 grand of my own money. The rest was borrowed. And since that 30 grand, I haven't put my own money into the portfolio, into the deals, nothing. It's all investor finance. And that's because of your brand. But equally, that 30,000 pounds... I know you said there's a, a privileged position to have that money, whatever. But as a property investor, that's not a huge amount because if I think about people that do like buy to lets, they need significant percentages in order to to get a mortgage for that. And thirty grand is not going to really cut the mustard in a lot of the different cities that you might want to be doing that in. You've obviously name checked there some areas up north, Wales, parts of that as well are maybe more affordable for for investors. But it's interesting that almost all your capital after that first deal has come from the fact that people have a trust in you from listening to you for an hour a week in a podcast or however many YouTube videos are consumed or however many Instagram stories they've seen you talking to your story as a genuine person and showing the the process as well. But let's let's really go into that 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 first deal, Tej. You've, you've got 30 grand of your own money. You've uh, you've got some support from a family member to, to kind of make up the, the shortfall that the, the brokers let you down on, which I imagine is a story that's... Uh, happened to many different people over the over the years and um, but what was that first one like and, and how did it snowball from there yeah so that one the first one I found through a deal sourcer uh, who I haven't worked with since which might just explain everything uh and I you know quick figures bought it for 50 grand spent about 13 grand all in stamp duty fees refurb very small refurb got revalued at eighty thousand pounds so I got 75% of that 80,000 pounds back after six months, which means I got 60 grand to back out. I only spent 63. So it's not a free house. Well, it is now, but it was net cash flow in about 
300 quid a month profit. So quick maths, after a year, that money left in is not anymore. And right now, there's no money in this house. But if I sell it, after the mortgage, I'll make 25% profit of 80. It's probably worth 90, 95 now. So it was, you know, it's one of my best deals because it was quite simple. It should have been quite simple. Um, the numbers are really easy to understand. And the same tenant's been there since then. And, you know, no real issues. A bit late to pay rent sometimes, but just one text in, in my account. Um, and I think in terms of how it snowballed, this buyer refurbish refinance model that I do and my book is about, you never, like, until you do it, and even now when I do it, you know, I'm on my, what is it, 17th property right now. Even when I do it now, I'm just like, is this real? Did I put this money in? And then I've taken most of it back out or some of it back out. I've only left a bit in, but I've got a house and and I didn't use my money. It, it honestly still blows my mind. I think it always will. Um, And so I suppose from that first point, it kind of snowballed because I did it. The reval, yeah, it took six months to come in, fine. But in that time, I suppose I understood it more and I saw that, oh, I'm doing it. It's happening. Okay, I can do this. I'm an adult now, tick. And then it just sort of, um, my impatience took over maybe. And I said, well, we need a couple more. Yeah, we need to keep going because I've, I've, I've proven the model with yes. this first house. Let's keep going. And to do that, you probably just needed to have more conversations like the one you had with your family member to say, if you invest in in me in this project, I can I can I can I can bring this to the fore. I can I can get this result for you. I'm mm -hmm. I'm always interested in what these investor conversations are like. Tej, people come to you, or you're outreaching. How are you managing that? It's both. So I get a few leads through my website. Maybe every week I get a couple of leads. Most of the time wasters. They ain't got the money. They're just they're chatting shit. It's fine. It is that's life. Um, through Instagram, I get people randomly saying, you know, hey. Do you, do you take investments? Can I invest in you? I saw you said something. Uh, oh, I heard a podcast from six months ago. Are you still looking for that? So I would say the vast majority comes to me. Um, I also have like a list, I suppose, because uh, I did this thing. And again, I, I might do it again. It's an invest and learn where people invest in me for 0%. Crazy. But they get access to my education and mentoring instead of an interest rate. So they can invest and learn. So I've got like a waiting list for that. If I ever open it up again, if I can find more deals, um i then i suppose on my instagram story and things like that will mention it and then people will respond or people you know will hear me say on a podcast like this and say oh i heard you with colin and you're looking for money and so i think really apart from my list i don't sort of reach out to anyone necessarily i bring them to me through various touch points on the brand um and there's just instagram stories that you mentioned help because they see me for who i am and that's who they're investing in not my deals not really yellow they're investing in me yeah exactly that and it's it's the most unfiltered version of you possible because well instagram stories are 15 seconds you also support that with hours and hours in a podcast and mm -hmm. you'll know and anyone that i've spoken to that's a fellow podcast host knows that people can't hide behind the veneer for a full hour and beyond because it's just not possible so if you've heard somebody on three or four podcast interviews best believe you know them better than most of their instagram audience because you've heard them at length because it's, it's quite hard to, to put forward this super polished veneer and, and you were calling out some of the people standing with the big watch in front of the Lambo. Those guys, they rely very much on the lack of attention that we maybe have to, to, to detail and the, the, the ability for us to really assess what somebody's like. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that first deal went really well. Do you have any other deals that stand out that you kind of look back on quite fondly? I would say most of my deals have actually done well it's, i mean in terms of the spreadsheet so yeah they've been hell some of them are still fixing maintenance issues got cowboy builders you know i've had so many you know plumbers putting in radiators and then you lift the pipe up and it just it's not connected to anything it's just into the carpet <laughs> I, had to, I had to laugh at that and um, then i sued him which was good fun but like and i've done that oh so many times with builders I, I i think the other deal that really sticks out to me is potentially one that I've got right now, which um, I've been trying to sell for a while. It's kind of struggled. So many viewing, so much interest, but little things are putting people off. Um, and I've had the three sales fall through on it. Anyways, it was supposed to sell for about £85,000 profit, which is huge because I only bought it for £141,000. So quite a big return. I think it was 40%. Then I went and got a mortgage valuation because I was like, oh, let's just 
let's just see it was free and that came back at higher than it's selling for so what the hell is this so essentially it's a no money left in deal cash flow is about 250 a month 220 a month not a lot but it's no money left in but it also pulls out eighteen thousand pounds so i have eighteen thousand pounds of cash here to just go in, you know, whatever, do some crypto silly stuff with or something, um, you know, so that kind of stands out to me. Uh, and I've had, you know, I've had quite a few other deals, which I talk about in my book, like I break the figures down as case studies that I've just looked at and been like, did I really just like, is this a real deal where I put no money in? I've taken all back out or most of it back out and it's renting this much or I've got like, I've got two holiday lets and I look at the profit from them and I think bleeding heck. Like, this is a lot more than a buy to let. And again, there's not much left in. Um, yeah, a lot of my deals, or a lot of my houses, to be fair, carry a little bit of, I'm not saying negative energy, but I get anxious when I think about some of them or even get, drive near them because I just think of the hardship I suffered, my own fault, on these refurbs with these cowboy builders and the pain and the money lost and all these issues that, yeah, some of them are just like, oh, don't talk about those. Even though they're great, they're, they're great, the turns are fine and it's going well. I can only imagine the emotional attachment you've got to some of the houses because of the blood, sweat, tears, anxiety that's gone into them. Does that make it harder for you to exit? No, it makes it easier because I'm like, you know what, you can get out of my portfolio because you just pissed me off and it's only negative when I'm thinking about you. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, managing builders, I can teach people how to do it and I have and I do but actually wanting to do it myself, I've had enough. So yeah, exiting, for me, for me, there's no positive emotion strong enough about a house that makes me want to keep it. It's what does the spreadsheet say? That, that's it. What does the spreadsheet say? Have you always had that um, relationship with money and stuff like that as well? Because like when you're talking about leaving the pharmaceutical industry quite quickly, leaving recruitment quite quickly, it seems that it's a, maybe a personality trait that you're quite good at detaching. Yeah, I, I lack empathy. I just really, really struggle with empathy. And I've only really discovered that, like, or I suppose understood that it's empathy I lack in the past sort of six months, maybe a year. Um, I'm very easy to, I'm not even attached in the first place. So I'm very easy to detach. Um, I do have emotions. I'm quite emotional, but understanding like someone else's situation and then understanding, uh, I suppose that's kind of separate to your question, actually. I think more to your question is money and the things I like. Like I said, I think I said really early on, if I don't like it, it's done. There's not, there, there is no room for this. There's no calories for this conversation anymore. I can't entertain it. And so I think it's that efficiency and that logical thing in my brain, which doesn't look at the emotion of it. Like, oh, I founded that business and I ran it for two years. I'm like, I founded it, I ran it, cool, it's done next because it is what it is if i had a pet cat i'd probably be more emotional and thoughtful about it than i would the business yeah i, I think it's really important that people recognize their skill set though because you're mm. clearly got a skill set to as a businessman to move on quite quickly from things that no longer serve you whereas mm. some people listening to this might be like oh no but like if i if that was my first property deal i would be like so reluctant to ever sell it because that was my first whereas you're like well actually the spreadsheet now says that it no longer serves me. So I need to move on and I'll feel an elation and a high from the next deal. I'll look at the spreadsheet and wonder that I actually put like, what, how did this all happen? Like you'll get that buzz, which is great for you, but then you're not chasing the next, but you're happy to move to the next when it serves you. So I think for a lot of people listening to this, thinking about how their personality type relates to that kind of decision-making is important mm -hmm. when you consider what asset class you look at. And one yeah. of the big questions that I had for you that was kind of burning in the back of my head was you've named a few different types of deal. You've named buy to let, you've named BRR, which is your, probably your favorite method. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some holiday lets as well. Um, what are the considerations people need to take into account when they consider the strategy that they might want to go for? Yeah, so one of the most common questions is what strategy do I do? There's so many out there I don't know. And you know what? It's a question that, is asked in every situation what food shall i eat what exercise shall i do where shall i walk what clothes shall i wear well it all depends on the end goal like what do you want from that action what is the result what is the consequence of that action and with strategies people sort of forget this and they also forget their situation because if you come to me and say i've got one thousand pounds in my bank account what strategy can i do well i'm telling you you're not buying a house right? unless you've got investors on board your first with what you have there you're not buying a house 
Are you doing a rent to rent? Maybe you doing deal sourcing? Yeah, probably. You know, are you doing some management agreement type thing? Yeah, probably. You buy a, a development, a million pound plot of land? No. But then also it's about the goal. So it's like, well, okay, that's what you have right now. Fine, cool. What have we got access to in your network or in some shape or form? But then where do you want to be? Like if, you know, some people say to me, Ted, you know, I'm retiring in 40 years. I want 10 houses by then. And I'm like, look, buy one every couple of years. Use your savings. Don't worry about it. Just take it easy. Some people, oh, I hate my job. I've got 10 grand in the account. Like I want to be like you and have a buy to their portfolio, but I really need to leave my job. It's not good for my mental health. And I say, well, you're not buying with that kind of money, but you could do some rent to rents, maybe some deal sourcing to generate some cash. It takes time. It's hard. Don't get me wrong to get you to that goal, which is to quit your job or, you know, whatever it is, pay for your kids educational. So people really need to think about the end goal and what they currently have and what they have access to. And how does that all link up and what strategy is going to get you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you said there, because so many people would maybe look at the numbers that you've done on one of your BRRs and be like, that's the strategy for me. But then they're not taking into account that you had the 30 grand there plus the extra 20 to make up the 50. Yep. And they're, they're not applying their own situation to where what, what they want to achieve. And I think when you're talking about other considerations alongside, like what is what on earth is the end goal? Like what's your why? And I know that's a little bit cliched now with um, Simon's next book, but knowing what your why is, is incredibly important because for me, if I was to get another property apart from the one that I own and live in, I would want it to return I don't know, a, a potential number off the head. I would have to work that out to understand how much time I want to assign towards it, what resources do I want to use. Do I want to use a Tej? Do I want to use somebody to, to, mm -hmm. to make that happen for me? Or do I have the bandwidth to do it myself? Or do I want to mm -hmm. use a letting agent once I've purchased the property? All these different considerations that people are maybe not looking at when they see somebody like yourself who's working towards or maybe is close to or actually at financial freedom through property. There's so many... Uh, little baby steps along the way that they need to consider a lot of baby steps a lot of leaps too a lot of walking on fire walking on spikes um wanting to put nails into your like there's so much pain that comes with it i, I you know i try explaining it in my podcast i try explaining it in my videos um but like i said society doesn't want to see that they just want to see the success you know i put a picture um of uh, a car that i bought recently and it got like the most likes ever. Yeah, and I thought, and I did, and I, I knew it would. I was like, you know what, let's just test. Let's see if society's changed. Um, and all the posts I put up about, you know, hey, here's how you avoid cowboy builders. Here's some top tips for finding deals. Here's how you read legal packs. Like 25% of the likes of that one. Now, I'm actually adding real value with some of these posts. The car post was not, oh, it was inspiring, fine but it really it's shallow and it's not adding real value, but it got more likes. So yeah, there's a lot of pain. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that's just how we're wired. I also think that's how the platforms are rewarded as well, because it looks yep. nice in the feeds. People like to look at aesthetic things and, and double tap that rather than, and this is a strange one. I'll have people message me who never ever like, like or comment on posts, but they'll be like, I really liked that particular post that you did on this. And I'll be like, Oh, but like, and the way Instagram is at the moment, I'll be like, I don't think you liked that post because I didn't have like that many likes on it. But it obviously spoke to you in a way that was helpful. Whereas if I post a photo like with me and my top off and it gets loads of likes, great. But nobody's messaging you off the back of that to say, oh, I learned this from that post. So it's it's, it's there's a lot of overlap there in terms of how, uh, how social media is, is wired. One of the other considerations for any property investment has got to be location, hasn't it? What role has that played for you in a personal basis, Tej? Yeah, so I live in London or now I live in Hertfordshire and, you know, investing around here is great for flips, you know, big profit, you know, lovely area. People want to live here. Demand is crazy. Commuter towns, blah, blah, blah. But for BRRs, it doesn't really work as well. You've got to leave a lot of cash in because the values are higher. Your yield is compressed. Your return on money is compressed. You know, for me, it just didn't work because I have investors to pay back. Now, for some people, they'll accept the yield here because it's their own cash, you know, or they've got JVs where they're in it for 10, 20 years and it's not even a consideration. But for me, it was like, right, we need to move quick. We using investor funds, I need to pay them back. So it has to be somewhere that, you know, works for BRR, works for flip, strong sales market, strong, 
that. And by the way, everywhere works for every strategy, but it may not work for you in that area. So for me, location is important. I think that's on a macro scale. If you look on a micro scale, uh, I think for flips, so when you buy to sell, it's I think it's more important the location there because someone's putting in 10% deposit, their life savings, it's years to save up, years of sacrifice. They want it to be perfect. And I'm buying my own residential house now, finally. And yeah, like yesterday we went to one, drove on it and I said, we can't get both our cars on it. There's an instant no. Let's see it though, cute house. But we're just like, yeah, cool. No, um, little, little, th- and the staircase was weird and little things like that will put people off. On a rental, not really much of a commitment. So people are more likely to live in certain areas. So yeah, location is important, um, but more so for flips, I think. Okay, that's interesting. And within your own portfolio, uh, a lot of that's in, in Wales, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got the one cottage I spoke about earlier, which pulls all the money out, is in a little village in sort of Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire. I don't know which one the address says both sometimes, I don't even know. Um, and yeah, you know, doing stuff locally, I say locally, it's 40 minutes away. I don't want to go there. The drive is lovely and it's a nice country drive, but it's too far. Like for me, it's either going to be two or three hours away where I just don't go at all or it's going to be down the road. Because if it's in the middle, you're like, oh, I don't want to, you know what I mean? So this is me though. I'm at a point where, yeah, the financial freedom is there. I don't need this headache. I don't need this BS. I'm trying to outsource it and focus on content and doing things like this. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. And the portfolio that you've got that's two, three hours away, why that location for you? What was the what were the drivers? Pretty much everything I said earlier, really. Um, there's nothing unique about it. You find it in Sheffield, in Scotland. You find it in Liverpool, uh, in Northern Ireland. You'll find these anywhere. Um, but because I used to live in West London, it was straight up the M4. It was just a bit easier. Uh, now it's now it's actually three hours away. Um, so I have to do a stop off on the way if I ever go. Um, but yeah, that's it. There was no, a lot of people ask me like in Instagram, like, oh, you know, I spent ages and ages and ages looking for a location. I'm like, look, think about the logistics as well. Like think about the journey time because a lot of areas will work for a lot of strategies, especially when you leave London. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that That's interesting. So for flips, location, super important, sorry, less important, but for um, rental, it's about where where somebody could want to live potentially rather than so for else. flips it's more important for rentals important. less important less important okay right fantastic I think, I think that's a really good insight but equally the stuff that you've got in south wales is brr uh yeah brr or service accommodation yeah service like accommodation. A holiday oh cool cool interesting um a lot of people would say not to start with a flip or sorry to start with flips and not buy to lets is that purely down to capital so for example you'd need a lot more for a buy to let mortgage than you would need to purchase something that's maybe a bit run down that you're going to do up um it it really varies because what you said can be true but the opposite can be true and the middle can be true it all just depends where you're buying and what kind of price level you're buying at so a lot of people i think have the opposite kind of view where they say um oh i'll buy a buy to let because everyone understands it it's like oh you keep your assets you let them appreciate you just put a tenant i think there's kind of an old school generational exist and it's not a bad thing view and mentality of hold your assets which is fine so i think a lot of people come to it with that kind of view i think people should consider flipping because if you can generate more and more cash from the pot small pot you might have great Use some of that to go buy some BRs and then use the rest of it to flip again. You're basically using flips as your cash cow. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of work, takes a bit of time to generate cash to then go build a portfolio instead of I've got 30 grand, let me buy a BRR, hopefully pull up most of the money, some of the money. Great, 300 quid a month net cash flow and only 20 more to go before I'm financially free. Whereas a flip can just do a lot for you. Yeah, it, it, it frees up more. What are some of the biggest challenges with the flips, though? You said there, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it, and that's potentially getting it ready to sell? Yeah, pretty much. For me, and I think for a lot of developers, the biggest part of the biggest risk area, but also the biggest place you can save and make money is the refurb because of the very nature of builders as a species. Uh, I wish, you know, there'd be an asteroid that would just hit the builders and make them extinct like I did dinosaurs sometimes. Um, but yeah, and if you've ever worked with a builder or cowboy builders, you'll know why I say that. Um, because of that, 
it can that is probably the most difficult part of a flip because with a flip you know there is no excuse for sort of bad quality or not the best finish with a rental people won't admit it but yet the finish is less than a flip of course it is and yeah you're going to be more forgiving to oh bloody patch of bad plaster or you you are just going to be more forgiving it won't necessarily affect your reval it won't affect your rental necessarily with a flip someone's going to walk in see that and say oh if that's a bit crap then oh what else is crap what can't i see that it's a just a downward spiral it's a big rabbit hole you don't want to get into so i, I think that getting it ready you know doing the right level without getting too far into it or without being too cheap which i've been too cheap before okay. and it bit me in the ass it bit me in the ass every time all the time um i think you know this selling it like i said with my one i've had three people drop out beautiful house like incredible location everything's incredible you know are you how are you gonna deal with that how are you gonna tell your investors uh yeah the payment's late I, I've, i'm doing that right now i said look here's what's happened um here's you know nothing i could do about it here's what i've done to avoid it but potentially the rent you know sorry the um payment and interest will be late it, it is what it is like there's no here's what it is yeah you said you've been cheap before and that's a mistake that you've made what other mistakes stand out to you mm. god where do i start um trusting one builder with too many projects uh, not visiting site enough not having a project manager or a trusted person on site to check things uh not buying more properties because after this sort of nine months and after i sorted them out covid kind of happened the market went crazy and now the market's just nuts actually i probably should have bought some more because you know be in an even better situation uh i think i would have but that's only with hindsight because if the market didn't shift i would say whoa do not buy any more that was enough that was so stressful uh i think you know in terms of my professional team like solicitors brokers things like that you know after that first one they've been incredible same solicitor same broker same insurance like so no mistakes in that end uh I think I probably could have done with a mentor uh, or at least someone every month who I was paying to be accountable to just check in and say, this has happened this month. My builder said this, I didn't really acknowledge it, but what does that mean? Or like, uh, you know, cause with my mentees, I'm having a go at them often. Like, what are you doing? Like, why have you done this? Did you not see this? If I had that, I would have saved a lot of money, not lost money on certain deals and just be in a better situation. So I think that's probably one of the mistakes that would quite easily Although at the time it's not easy and it feels expensive, but that would have probably had a big return on investment alongside just builders and, and things like that. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I think a lot of the time we do look for somebody that's a few steps ahead of us or a lot of steps ahead of us just to guide us along the process. And mm. with property, there's a lot of language barriers um, in terms of there's lots of different acronyms that we've used today. There's lots of different jargon around mortgages and uh, like getting it ready for sale and all that kind of um, jargon that will be surrounding that. And having somebody that can help you sift through that would probably be mm. something that's quite reassuring. And also if they have a slight detachment when it's not their money, I think they can make a more rational decision as well. Because while somebody with your personality type, Tej, which you've spoken at length about in this discussion, is quite good at being quite logical, there's a lot of people who get incredibly emotional about money. And yep. one of the asset classes that, I was talking to you about that I got really into over the last 18 months, two years, as a lot of us does, was crypto. And I know so many people who have panicked throughout the different market cycles that we've seen with the different dips. And I'm just sitting there like, I can't believe you panicked because I've read and I've listened to so much content that says it's a very volatile market. It's going to dip, buy the dip, sell. sell. <laughs> like it's, it, it's incredible that that happens. But if there's not the equivalent for that in property, when somebody gets a little bit rattled, something doesn't go to plan, then of course you're more susceptible to kind of almost burning your own profits through all sorts of different uh, issues that you can encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Then it goes back to like the first question and kind of one of the first questions and where I said about understanding, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, Tej, what if I like did a refurb? It's a big 60 grand HMO conversion. So it's not just like a lick of paint. It's like we're doing some serious stuff here. And he goes, what if I just, he said the words, what if I just jump in blind and just, just do the refurb, you know, like, you know, and I was just like, oh, I said, do you drive your car blind? No. Okay. Do you lift weights blind? No. Okay. Would you do heart surgery blind? No. Okay. So what are you doing? And things like that are really dangerous, especially when you're, you're stupid enough 
to have money, but you won't spend it on learning how to do it. Or even your time, like go on YouTube, you know, how to check if plaster is good, um, how to build an extension. There's so much good stuff on YouTube and, and podcasts as well that you can get ahead of the game. You know, my solicitor actually has a, um, a YouTube channel called Conveyancing Matters. Listen, it's hella dry, yeah? Like, I love it though, because I'm into legals like in a kind of, you know, um, geeky way. But if you if you listen to that and watch that, you would learn so much. It's free and it's on you. People don't seek these things out. Um, there's a balance between taking action and thinking too much. And they're always going to fight each other and you get analysis paralysis and you're, oh, I'm, you know, but before you do something, you have to kind of know something a little bit, I think. Do you see that with mentees that maybe they want to get too much into the spreadsheet and not take action? Yeah. Um, to be fair, a lot of my mentees are probably the opposite, not the opposite, but they, because they have me mentoring them, they feel confident and they say, well, Ted, if you have approved this deal and I'm going for it, you know, if you have said that this legal, you know, then I'm going for it. So I suppose that's where the role of me sort of comes in. But they also, I think, and they, whether this is a good or bad thing, they also know if they're not taking action, I'm going to have a go at them. I'm going to tell them off and be like, what are you doing? Or if they're doing too much, like one of my mentees wanted to do way too much. And it was like a 14 day auction completion. And I said to him, I literally said, where's the money for this? He goes, so where's the money for this? Oh, um, yeah, I found these JV. I said, have they shown you their bank statements? No, you have no money and you want to complete in 14 days. And this is your second ever deal. I said, where's the money? And I'll do that to them because if you're not told and that's just my style but if you're not told and if you haven't got a person kicking your ass who's x many steps ahead of you you might bid on that you might go for that and then you're like uh-oh i need 70 grand in like 14 days or else i'm gonna lose everything that is a horrible horrible situation to be in yes and sometimes you do need tough love and i guess different personality types will respond differently to different mentors but you yeah. being able to yeah. deliver that it's it, it, it's very clear that that's how you're gonna manage somebody's relationship just based on the content you put out there because as we said before you're not putting up a, a slightly different version of Tej in order to get get mentees and investors in and then they get behind the the curtain and they're like oh it's a bit different to what I expected <laughs> but I was I, I was really interested when I was consuming all your content that within your business and your life you seem to have taken a lot of inspiration now from from stoic wisdom when mm -hmm. when did you start to dive into that yeah good question you know what it would have probably been a couple of years ago, I think, no, I think it was when I had the recruitment business. So like maybe, yeah, three, four years ago, um, I discovered Ryan Holiday, who is an incredible author. Uh, you know, he lives on a Texan ranch and he just, just lives life and loves books and stuff and writes lots of stuff. And I think he's probably the most accessible, clearly written, modern, stoic uh, transcriber or whatever that you could read because his books aren't and look, I think Stoicism is written, you know, it's kind of like Shakespearean, ancient Greek. It's it's written in a way that a lot of people wouldn't connect with. But what Ryan Holiday does is actually just convert it into plain modern English and help you understand these things in a modern context. But whilst also paying, paying homage to these guys, you know, men, men and women thousands of years ago who created this. But also shows you, um, it's quite sad because why are lessons from thousands of years ago still applicable today? Why haven't we changed and why we haven't, haven't we evolved? Much, have we? Evolutionary, we're still wired very similarly. Yeah. And, and you think like, okay, like we're still having the same problems. So this, you know, these problems are clearly human problems. And yeah, so it was a couple of years ago. I think I was just sort of looking for mindset stuff because recruitment was getting me down and like pissing me off. Um, and you know, there's, I mean, look at my bookshelf. There's quite a few good books um, on stoicism. I think it's important for everyone to have something they believe in religion, you know, whatever, um, or some sort of life philosophy that kind of guides your morals and your behavior. And it's nice that it's based off this old wisdom that for me anyway, is quite logical. It makes a lot of sense to my mind. Yeah. In the kind of post-religious, more secular society that we live in, I think there is tremendous merit in having some sort of faith in a system or a set of principles. And stoicism is a pretty good one and given the way that you run your business and your lifestyle i think there's a nice overlap in terms of how you've implemented it as well because it's all well and good you reading stoicism but then flapping and panicking at the slightest change in a deal or something like that that's not very stoic marcus aurelius would not approve at all but but i, I, find, I find it very interesting and 
I'd love to know, are there any particular areas that you think you've maybe implemented a stoic approach within the last couple of years when you've been reading it? Yeah, so Ryan Holiday has a book called Ego is the Enemy, and it just talks about the ego or the construct that is the ego. And there's another good book, The um, Chimp Paradox by, I think, Professor Stephen Peters. And actually, my mother got me a chimp to keep on my desk at all times to remember that when the chimp gets released to lock it back up, although chimp should be in the wild, but to put the chimp away and let the human uh, kind of come out. And, you know, this represents the ego because chimps are driven by ego and a lot of animals are driven by ego, by evolutionary needs. So I think Stoicism's kind of view on the ego and how silly we can be as humans and how much value we add to stuff because of our ego and our desires. But are they desires? Are they lusts? Are they wants? Do we need them? How does that relate to being virtuous and living a good life? Um, I think another really important part of Stoicism, which I think I've always had a bit of, but this really sort of strengthened it, is um, it's best. There is a really good quote from Epictetus, but Shakespeare basically copied Stoicism and summarized it when he said, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Now, what that means is nothing has a sentiment. Um, you know, someone says something, uh, this window breaks, you know, I drop my phone, like someone makes a weird comment, someone cuts me up. There's no sentiment to that. The sentiment is what I put on it. Like the sentiment is, oh, they cut me up. Oh, but they just hit the car in front. That saved me. Okay, that's different. Or they just cut me up. Oh, dickheads, what's wrong with them? You know, um, someone made a comment. Oh, they hate me. Why are they so rude? Or they're an idiot. Cool, whatever. Like the, 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 everything we do and live can be perceived how we want it to be. We see the world how we want it to be. Someone could come on this podcast now and say one thing and you could be so angry at it. And I could just be like, ah, it's funny. And that, that, that will happen. Um, and I think understanding that the perception is created based off your worldview, your upbringing, your culture, everything is really important in understanding the world, other humans, and just being or trying to be a lot calmer and more virtuous. Okay, so I, I completely love that and completely agree entirely. When uh, a development is delayed by, a, uh, maybe, let's let's not say a cowboy builder because you're vetting them so hard now that they're not going to be cowboys, but let's say he makes a, a calamitous error. How are you bringing that energy to, to a conversation like that in the past? Do you think the, the chimp would have come out more? Yeah, I think the chimp in the past would have come out just like, boom, heavy-handed, whatever. Now I make, a, I make a real effort to, and I always call this, putting a gap between the stimuli and response. If you can take a deep breath or put any sort of gap between what you've said or what you've done to annoy me and response, it's always better. You know, instead of writing that email, as soon as you feel that thing, it's like, come back to it later. Put it in your t- come back. It's, it's so difficult to do this because your emotions like, no, tell them how you feel. Tell them, how-. He's like, tell them how you feel. Tell them how you feel. And you're like, no, right. Coming back to it later is really important. So with something like that, I would I would have to give it time. Now, I don't have time. I'm on bridging finance. I'm on investor finance. Get shit go in. And you, now you've caused an issue and a delay. I'm on less time. But I would give it time. Now, the way I kind of tend to approach it nowadays um, is is more sort of inquisitive and, you know, more sort of asking open questions instead of accusing. You know, before it would have been like, why, you know, you've done that. You're an idiot. Like, how can you make that mistake? What's wrong with you? There's no answer to those questions. They are just, I'm having a go at you now. How, so how did that happen? Now, what made that happen? Now, you're an experienced builder. So what steps led to that? Okay, and do you think that's acceptable? I basically make the person show themselves how stupid they've been. And that sounds like manipulation. Maybe it is, whatever. Um, I don't do it to everyone. It's primarily in situations like this. But I'm more like saying, okay, you tell me what's gone wrong. I'll process it and we'll come up with a solution. But, but frankly, you've tainted my thoughts on you. You've tainted my perception of you. And, and that's life and you can't change that. But I definitely come with more inquisition than I do come with heat. Even through that process, Otesh, you could regain some of the respect for somebody if they come with some sort of um, a solution idea. Whereas if you fly off the handle and just call them an idiot, a moron or whatever else, they, the last thing they want to do is be like, well, actually, I've been thinking about this because we fell down on this step. In fact, we can maybe do this. They're just thinking like, fight or flight as well. They're just going, going, going back at you. So 
I, I'm sure that's paid off for you, and it's always nice to see how these things come come back around. One of the last areas I wanted to understand was around like your diary management in life and business. You're a busy man. Many of the people listening to podcasts like this will have aspirational careers or businesses, and they'll be balancing a lot of their fitness and their interests as well. And I know that's an area that you're prioritizing now as well. What are some of the core habits that keep Tej Talks functioning at its very best? Oh, that's a really good question. I like that. Um, for me, one of the core habits is getting up in accordance with my circadian rhythm and also the weather. So in winter, I will get up a little bit later because it's darker, it's colder. My body is telling me, stay the F in bed, boy. When it's summer, I'm up, I'm out. Mm, 5, 15, 5.30 a.m. And look, waking up early is not a habit that everyone needs. Some people are owls, some people are larks or whatever the thing, whatever. Um, but for me, getting up early, even though my body, even in summer, you know, still doesn't want to, lying down is great. Um, that for me, that first step, because also my partner doesn't get up that early. Now, if I wake her up, my head will be on a stick. So I have to get up like a ninja. And that's like, and I'm not the lightest of chaps, right? And so for me, I've already achieved something. I'm like, yeah, you're still asleep. Mm -hmm. You didn't even know I left the house. So for me, it's like, as soon as I wake up, tick, I've, I've done something. I've got up, I've, I've done it silently. I've got changed, I've got ready for the gym. I've stretched, I've rolled, I'm ready to go. Um, drinking lots of water, eating five to seven fruit and veg a day, um, being very, very conscious of what I'm eating, how I'm eating it, where it's coming from, supplementing when needed, um, exercising every day, all day, going for a 3.5 km walk every day, minimum plus, I mean, I get 10,000 steps naturally. I don't aim for it, but I get it. I get more than that. Um, my new fitness watch has a thing. I get up every hour to get just to walk around. Yeah. Um, I've set my posture up correctly on my desk. Uh, I use, you know, like a massage gun. I use all sorts of kind of little, little things throughout the day. I stretch a lot. I do yoga a lot, breathing exercises, a lot of focus on my body, the one only one I have and my mind, the only one I have to ensure that it's operating at a strong base level to ensure that whatever else comes on top of this foundation um, is maximized. And I think, you know, there's also other things like uh, investing in things that give me a strong return. So this fitness watch, um, I don't know what it was, 170 quid or something. I don't actually use it as a phone. I've got no notifications on it. I bought it so that I can use my phone less. But for me, I get an ROI on this because at the gym, I can time my sets and my things better. I know if I'm working out effectively or sleeping effect, all here. Yeah, it cost me 180 bloody quid. But instantly, you know, I spent 120 quid on some Vivo barefoot shoes. My hip is healed and I had mad issues. Like I will invest in stuff now that will give me a return. Um, you know, reading every day. Uh... That's a great lens to view things through, Tej. I really like that lens where does it have a return? And I've, one of the kind of podcast series that I've done as a round table with a couple of friends is overrated, underrated. And we looked at things like cold showers, mm. NSDR. And for me, I never really stuck with the cold showers, but I journal every morning and every night. And the return on that over two years has been excellent. And mm. it's really important that when you look at the amount of time that you're investing in a habit or a behavior or a fiscal investment into Vivo Bear Shoes or a fitness watch, if they have a uh, return for you that's measurable in terms of the quality of your life and the quality of your output thereafter, you're on you're on to a winner. Um, equally, I love the fact that you've addressed things like going for like a 3.5km walk as a minimum every single day. And of course, you'll, you'll get your 10,000 in the background. And we know that 10,000 is a very arbitrary number <laughs> um, and it has a lot of benefit. Actually, interestingly, in the mad world of podcasting, I've already spoken to him, but it'll come out after this episode. Um chap called Shane O'Mara who wrote a book called The Power of Walking genuinely mm. seriously clever guy really really interesting but I would imagine and based on what Shane has told me the creativity that you come back with from your walk will probably be quite significant as well because it allows our brain to behave in a particular way that allows us to come back and then deliver yeah. equally I don't know about you but if I'm thinking about content for the podcast if I sometimes have a walk where I'm unplugged and no content at all my god I'm like in my notes on my phone being like Colin, speak to this guest or ask somebody this question. And that is a magic that we generate from the kind of primal feeling of being on our two feet and stomping around. So it, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that somebody that's operating and vibrating at the frequency that you are has some of these keystone habits that are looking after your well-being and your mind. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, walking, yeah, ugh, it's so it's so powerful. Like, and exactly what you said. So I try to not use my phone on walks out, but you know, sometimes I I I have to. And there's so many philosophers' quotes on walking and how powerful it is. Every single time I walk, I'm like, "Bing, why am I not doing that?" Or should I do this? And it's it is purely. I mean, I live in the countryside, so I mean, there's nothing. Well, there's birds and animals, which is great, but there's nothing to see. There's no stimuli, right? It's biophilic stuff. It's all stuff that just brings your mind to a certain wavelength, to a certain vibe, which I love. And the airs for everything's great, right? Especially with my vivos walking on fields and all that. It grounds me and it just brings me to a place where my mind is just sort of in an empty space. But it'll come up with ideas or it'll think through problems or it'll calm down. And it'll, yeah, actually, you've reminded me the creativity from a walk and the ROI on a walk, irrespective of fitness. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. And some of the listeners will be sick of me talking about this, but I've spoken about it a few times. But one of the things that I've started to implement is when I'm driving back from the gym, I don't I don't know whether you walk or drive to the gym to edge first thing in the morning. Um, but when I drive back, naturally, of course, I'll maybe still have the music or the podcast on that I was listening to in the gym. My drive is about 15 minutes now, sometimes less, depends how fast I go. And I'll I'll turn off the input. And if you just sit in the car back from the gym, you've all got these crazy endorphins, of course, from the exercise, maybe you've got a bit of pump on. You become acutely aware of like the feel of the leather stealing wheel, the, the, the kind of movement of your hand when you're changing gear, you become aware of the different surroundings because you'll have driven that drive hundreds, maybe thousands of times. You don't even like, you're not even aware sometimes that you maybe sat at those traffic lights for a little bit longer today than you did yesterday, because you've done the drive so many times it all just blurs into one. You'd be yeah. very hard pressed to be like, I drove past this type of car today. Because <laughs> how would you know? So it's been really interesting for me. It's almost like a almost like a little bit of a meditative experience, which is something I've struggled with driving back to help me switch off and realign. And it's exactly the same as you when you're maybe feeling grounded in nature. There's less stimulus going in. So your mm. mind comes up with ideas. So I'll sometimes get out of the car after the gym and be like, okay, I'm going to write this proposal and work. I'm going to write this, this email to this particular podcast guest. I'm going to record this type of video and it's mad what happens when sometimes we remove all the noise and we end up just stripping it back because evolutionary, as we said, we're not that different. Could you imagine our ancestors driving a killing machine at speed while listening to a podcast about property or about investing? Your, their brain would explode and ours is probably doing the same. We're not allowing it space to breathe. Yeah, no, I love that. I think finding, because you struggle with meditation, Every, everyone does i think it's you know these influencers make it seem like it's really easy but generally we struggle with it so i think it's important for people to find an experience that is meditative for them um because like for me also so in the gym i don't listen to anything i never have people say i'm a serial killer because i don't listen to anything i just i just and silence all the vibe um and so for me that is that is meditation like feeling the mind muscle connection feeling my breath and now with the, you know like for me, I'm not thinking about anything, but what the hell I'm doing. Phone is away. It's on do not disturb mode. This has no notification. So for me, the whole gym, the hour and a half hour on there is meditation. And I think people need to realize that meditation is what you make it space in your mind. And like, I have a friend who's incredibly high performer, works his ass off. Um, probably be a good guest for this, actually. And he's always busy. Always, always busy. And I said to him, because I'm not, I, I, you can tell I take things a bit easier. I said to him, you've got a lot of thoughts. You've got a lot of action. But where is the space between your thoughts? Where is the space between your actions and your thoughts? And he said, uh. I said, well, if you create that space, everything else outside of it gets better. But it also allows your mind to relax physically, mentally. But that is mindfulness. And that is, I don't know, contentment and peace is, is that space between thoughts which you're having in the car and using a physical experience to get to it. So I love that. I love that. Yeah, huge fan of that session. It's uh, a great note for us to wrap up on, but I think it just underlines a theme that I've seen throughout many of the episodes where you've got high performers that have these habits built around their lifestyle that enable them to, when it is time to get down to the deals and have conversations with investors, builders, project managers, and everyone else, you're ready to do it at your best self and deliver your um your your very best in that conversation rather than maybe being like you say always on always just steaming one thing to the next and of course you turn up and you're rushed and you maybe don't deliver the 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 optimal tedge that we uh, that, that we need and require but 
Um, in terms of continuing the conversation with you, Tej, where should the listeners head towards? Yeah, so uh, if you go to Instagram and type in Tej Talks, Tej.talks, you'll find me on Instagram, on YouTube, on Spotify, anywhere. Just type in Tej Talks. My books are on Amazon. Uh, and yeah, wherever you see the yellow and the black, that's me. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find the Tej Talks podcast, which is an absolutely fantastic resource for all things property, but also a lot of mindset content like we've gone into in that last little bit there. Thank you again for listening, guys. If you've enjoyed this one, make sure you're subscribed or following and you leave a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. We're up over 250 reviews now and we're not stopping anytime soon. I'll be back to speak to you all again next week.